keto freaks, guess what? The Kickstarter for Keto Fest is live. And in just a few days, we almost hit 30% of our goal. Now is the time. Go to KetoFest.com and pledge to reserve your tickets. Be part of history as Richard Morris and I turn the entire coastal town of New London, Connecticut, ketogenic for the weekend of July 15th and 16th, 2017. We're planning two days, Social Saturday and Science Sunday. Saturday is all about the pig roast, some amazing sous vide chuck steak, possibly some clam chowder, but cooking lessons, fitness lessons, walking tours, Segway tours, and the like. Saturday night, after having dinner at one of the many local participating restaurants, we're showing movies about low carb on the Guard Theater's 60-foot screen. Then on Science Sunday, you'll see talks by some of the brightest stars in the low-carb world, like Ivor Cummins, Jeffrey Gerber, Eric Westman, Dave Feldman, Megan Ramos, and Jimmy Moore. On Friday night, the 14th, there's a VIP party at my house where you can mingle with the speakers, but only 60 seats are available and they're going fast. We may also have a workshop on Friday during the day, but that's not yet solidified. So what are you waiting for? Go to KetoFest.com right now. The Kickstarter ends at the end of April, so claim your tickets today. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia, and I've been on a ketogenic diet for three years. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. And within six months of a starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost around 80 pounds and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Oh, yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. We have done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind those, uh, and we hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Oh, yeah. We love to cook and we love to eat. Sure do. In every show, each of us shares a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. Ha! Cannot be ignored. Ha! So let's start podcast number 63, Cholesterol Code Update with Dave Feldman. So Richard, do we have any corrections or apologies from last week? Uh, yeah, I've got one. It's a pretty crappy one. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So last week we spoke, or I spoke about uh, fat passing through your digestive system and coming out the other end mm. undigested, which is what happens when you just eat more fat than your gut is able to, to use. Process, and, yeah. And, and, I mean, there is a limit to how much fat you can 
you can get across your uh, your gut wall and there's a limit to how much bile you can produce and and so anything beyond that limit will actually go back out to waste disposal and i made the comment last week that you can see uh, fatty stools which is actually known as steatorrhea mm. is the technical term for it you can see fatty stools and it's actually diagnostic for uh, for issues with bile production and uh, gallbladder right. uh, um, function and what have you. But uh, you, it used to be thought, and I, I mentioned last week, that you can see fatty stools by the fact that they float in the bowl. Yeah. But some science has been sent to us um, mm. uh, from the New England Journal of Medicine showing that floating stools is actually caused by flatus. It's actually caused by methane embedded in the stools mm. rather than fat. And in fact... For steatorrheic uh, stools, it's uh, it's really the water in there rather than the fat that affects the density. So hmm. the, the amount of fat that you're going to have in your stool is not really going to affect the density sufficient to make uh, stools float. So, All right. As I say, it's a pretty crappy one. It's but a little crappy. <laughs> nice crappy way yeah. to start the show, but, you know, it's worth yeah. talking about. That's, that's why we ask everybody at the end of the show, if we've said anything wrong, anything you disagree with, let us know and we will call it out. So now I'm wondering if the test for fat in your stools is to light them on fire and see if they burn. <laughs> One of the diagnostics is color. It's the yeah. color of the stools. I think white white stools are considered to be stateric, but no. I, as I say, I thought floaters <laughs> yeah. were going to be a guarantee marker and apparently that's not the case, so... Good to know. Well, some alert listener will surely enlighten us on this matter. Awesome. Yeah. So let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is, Richard. Absolutely. So a ketogenic diet is under 20 grams of carbohydrates a day. Uh, we want uh, enough protein to be able to maintain your lean muscle mass. So between 1 and 1.5 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. Uh, and then... You want to get all of your energy from fat. 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 That fat could be fat on your plate or fat on your body that came from a Krispy Kreme that you ate a decade ago. <laughs> yeah, right. We're getting a lot of leverage out of that Krispy Kreme, let me tell you. Yeah, we certainly are. <laughs> the, uh, the important thing is, though, fat to satiety. And yeah. I don't mention this nearly as much as I should, uh, but satiety is a very important guideline. Um, if you're eating beyond satiety, then you're going to be gaining weight. If you're eating under satiety, then your metabolism is going to be dropping. Um, and if you can mobilize body fat, then you'll be losing weight. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in the mail section. So Richard, how was your week? Yeah, it was actually pretty good. It's not been long since we did our last recording, which was only a day ago. Right. <laughs> and we did our recording for, we did an extra recording this week for the Keto Fest. Yeah. And We've been working on uh, getting Keto Fest up and running. Yep. We're at 50% of the Keto Fest Kickstarter at this point, and we're at 50% of our target, our yeah. uh, financial target. So we had a really big jump in funds right at the beginning, and we've started to slow down a bit. So mm. it's going to be interesting. But, you know, if this thing gets across the line, we're going to change history. So uh, this is remarkable. Hang on, Dave is waving at me over Skype like he's got something to say. Yeah, look, guys, I, <laughs> I realize you're trying to be very, um, you're trying to be very careful about getting, yeah, conservative. Yeah. But you have to recognize the fact that uh, most Kickstarters barely, barely get off the ground at all, yeah. and all virtually every Kickstarter I've ever seen, uh, even the most rapidly successful ones, they tend to have a big spike at the beginning. And they tend to have a big spike at the end. 
Hmm. And one of the key benchmarks is whether or not they reach half their funding at the halfway point. That's why you've seen me chime in a lot. Because Mm. at that point, once you reach the halfway point, you've got a very strong threshold for the very end Mm. of the the Kickstarter because that's typically when there's a a second surge. And that second surge, you can actually see different analyses on that that gets impacted quite a bit by where things were in the progress up to that point. I am so glad somebody's thinking about (laughs) statistics here. And it's Dave. <laughs> We're just a couple of dudes on the internet. We're looking at Kickstarter like, well, that gets that's pretty good. Yep. Thanks, yeah, Dave. Look, look, you, you have 20K committed. And yeah. I think I'm going there this summer. That's what I think. And I think yeah. we're going to have yeah. a blast. I think there's a lot of amazing things we're going to get to do there. Yep. So mm. I, and by the way, I've been keeping this a secret, but I'm going to, I'm just going to mention, I'm going to tease it a little bit. I have a, a big experiment that I want to do while I'm there. Oh, uh, wow. But I can only reveal it if the Kickstarter actually kicks off and then okay. uh, we'll, we'll talk about it then. So it, that's it, a stretch goal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Force Dave to run his experiment. Yeah, exactly. It, it would, it would need to involve some people, but I think a lot of people will jump in the fray with me. So well, I can't, mm-hmm. I personally can't wait for that. I can't either, which is why we got to get there. We got to get to the fun. Yeah. I think it's going to happen. Yeah. Awesome. So, Richard, how are you fasting? Are you feasting? Are you doing the cycling yet? Or no, I, I haven't yet gotten to the fast. Uh, I thought I would do uh, it uh, last weekend, uh, mm. but uh, I guess it was emotional issues. Uh, yeah. I just I didn't feel like doing it, so I didn't do it. Um, but I'm thinking that um, probably over Easter because uh, it's uh, it's currently uh, here in Australia. It's Thursday before mm. Good Friday. So uh, I'm thinking over Easter I'm going to uh, do a, a three-day fast then. Okay. Other than that, it's just been a normal week for me. So how was yours, Carl? Mine was great. I'm on day two of a, of a three-day fast now, and I'm trying to uh, settle into a three-days fasted, four-days feasted pattern. And uh, wow. I think that's going to do really, really well for me. And the, again, the first day was harder than mm. the second day. The first day seems to be the hardest, but but it's completely surmountable. Um, it changes the longer you do it, too. Yeah, it gets uh, easier. I, that. I, I don't know why, for some reason, the past couple of weeks I've, I've started to fast and then just forgotten I was fasting mm. and... Made myself an omelet and gone. Ah, oh, you know, maybe maybe I'll fast tomorrow. And yeah. I've I've just haven't gotten around to it. So I've had those situations too, where I just I just wanted to eat and end the fast. Yeah, I think for me, it used to be we used to do the Zorn fast, where Brenda would announce a, a, a fast every month, mm. and we'd all fast at the same time. And I think that was a good commitment device for me. That that sort of got me to got me to the starting line. To, to get going. So oh, that's cool. maybe I should do some more Zorn fast. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe or we should just yeah. get a, a group of people together to, to find a pattern and stick with it. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. I like it. So I think the next segment for us is. Mail! 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 All right, so I'll start. We sure. got an email from uh, an Ian, and I won't mm-hmm. use his last name, but he says, Hi, guys. Not sure if I didn't get the email address correct last time, so I'm reposting my first question. In addition, just listen to your podcast on CICO, Calories In, Calories Out. Mm-hmm. I think he's yep. referring to the metabolism show, metabolic rate show. Yeah. I don't doubt what you've said, but I'm seriously confused. Yesterday, I listened to an interview with Ben Bikeman 
which seem to be the direct antithesis of your most recent show. I've attached a link here. And the link is to um, an episode of the Keto Evangelist podcast, right. where Ben was talking about the things that he talked about at Low Carb Breckenridge, which is hmm. the uh, calories in, calories out model versus the endocrine model, and mm -hmm. how the calories in, calories out model is encompassed within you know, the hormonal model. Yeah. And his revelation is that, yeah, calories in, calories out is an effect. We all know the laws of thermodynamics, but it's not as easy as, you know, what you eat versus what you burn via exercise. There are other ways that calories go out. As, yeah. I, as I mentioned in the show, you know, if you have uh, fat in your stools, that's calories out. That's potential energy yeah, that's, that's gone true. away. That nobody wants to count. <laughs> and nobody wants to count. That's right. And if you're in ketosis, ketones come out your breath, they come out your pores, and they come out your urine. Yeah. it's I, I totally agree with Dr. Bikeman on spillage on the calories outside of the ledger mm -hmm. um, because, uh, you know, we, we burn extra energy inefficiently. I think he called it a futile cycle. Yeah. Uh, we do that in brown fat. Um, we, uh, we also, as you say, waste ketones. Um, mm -hmm. It's not, uh, Dr. Bikeman said it wasn't highly meaningful, but it is still significant. It's still yeah. energy going out. And the other thing he mentioned was the thermic effect of food, yeah. which is uh, some foods take more energy to process. For example, protein takes more energy to turn into calories, to mm. turn into energy than uh, carbohydrates or fat. Mm. So you have to take that into account as well. So, um, and I would actually add, any process that is not essential for immediate survival, um, you also have to factor that in as well because, you know, these are things that we get around to if we have a glut of energy that we pull back if we have a restriction of energy. So things mm. like um, twitching of your leg or growing of hair or mm. a lot of things that, you know, if you have a, a, a strict starvation state where you don't have enough energy coming in, your body will stop a lot of these processes to uh, conserve energy for hmm. things that are essential for immediate survival. Yeah, So, and that's calories out. But on the calories inside, uh, the food that you eat has a direct effect on your insulin levels. And as we all know, when insulin is low, we can burn body fat. And when it's not, we can't. And it's all directed by what we eat. Right. Well, for a lot of it, it is directed by what we eat. And when we uh, eat it. I guess up front, I, I want to totally agree with Dr. Bikeman's central thesis that he gave during that podcast. Mm. Uh, and he also gave it uh, low-carb break. Yeah. Um, and he said really, and I'm quoting him here, I really want to impress on people the relevance of insulin. Yeah. So much of the benefit of a low-carb, high-fat diet is that you start to become insulin-sensitive as your insulin levels start to come down, right. and that starts to shift the entire body seemingly into a better state of cardiometabolic health. Yeah. Now that, that quote directly from him, but th that really is his central thesis, and I totally agree with him on that, that insulin really is the bully in the entire picture, and it, it basically drives a lot of our metabolic decisions that our body makes. Yep. He made reference to a study showing that basal metabolic rate is not an independent predictor of weight gain. Mm. And this study was the Baltimore Longitudinal Study. And okay. in particular, it's a paper entitled Fasting Respiratory Exchange Ratio and Resting Metabolic Rate as Predictors of Weight Gain. Okay. So this study looked at 775 men aged between 18 and 98 years. And they took their resting metabolic rate and their fasting respiratory exchange ratio, 
at their first visit and then every subsequent visit and then they tested their weight change. And what they were looking at was can you tell from how much gas somebody is breathing in and out and what their resting metabolic rate is to determine whether they gain weight or they lose weight. So they showed that the adjusted relative risk of gaining five kilos or more uh, in men with a fasting respiratory exchange ratio of 0.85 or more was calculated to be 2.42 compared to men with a fasting respiratory exchange ratio of less than 0.76. So the too long didn't read version is that your metabolic rate cannot be used to determine who will gain and who will lose weight, but whether you burn mostly glucose or mostly fat. Oh. And- this is what the respiratory exchange ratio is. It's sometimes known as the RQ, the respiratory quotient. Right. And basically, it's the amount of oxygen that you're breathing in over the amount of carbon dioxide that you're breathing out. And mm. if you burn fat, you need less oxygen to make the same amount of energy, so you have less oxygen breathing in to make more carbon dioxide coming out. So mm. that ratio goes down. So when the ratio is down around 0.7, you're burning mostly fat. When the ratio is up around 1.0, you're burning mostly glucose. Mm. And when the ratio is sort of around about 0.85, you're burning a mixed uh, diet of both glucose and fat. Or, or you could be just burning straight protein. Protein is in the middle range there. And they can measure this with a breath test? Yeah, and it's uh, it's remarkable because you can actually tell what uh, fuel somebody is use- burning, irrespective of what they're eating, based on their respiratory exchange ratio. I had read that um, before. Where did I read that? Maybe it was in Finney and Volokh. Well, Peter Atiyah did some Oh, that's tests. what it was. There's some videos of Peter Atiyah talking about the RQ yeah. to explain the difference between uh, somebody burning mostly glucose and somebody burning mostly, mostly fat. Right. But what they really showed was that you couldn't tell from someone's resting metabolic rate whether they were going to gain weight or lose weight. And I think it's really only the resting metabolic rate is only part of the calories out part of the picture because if you're trying to predict how much weight somebody's going to have, you need to know all of the calories going in and all of the calories going out. Most of these we really can't know. But let's say you were going to say, I'm only going to predict from the resting metabolic rate, that's one of the calories out pieces of the picture, whether this person's going to gain or lose weight. Okay. It's a little bit like trying to predict uh, using a count of total home runs, whether one baseball team or another is is going to win or lose a particular game. Sure, because a home run is just one way in which runs are scored. And yeah, you could have singles. You could have yeah. batters, uh, you know, batters run in with singles. Could be all and, walks. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the other part of the picture is you're only counting one team's score. Right. You're not t- counting the other team. So if you have a total shutout of the other team, um, you know, you only need one to to score one batter run in to uh, to to win the game. So what you're saying is there are so many variables that you really have to look at them all in order to make any kind of reliable prediction. Yeah, that's right. But the interesting thing is if you were to take all of the the players in on a particular pitch and you were to rank them from the person who has the highest batting average to the person who has the lowest batting average mm. and then and then you'd make one team of all of the top batting average players and the other team of all the lower batting average players, you'd be able to predict which team's going to win. The mm. team that's got the better batsman is probably going to win. Let's give them a good pitcher. Give yeah. them one player that's going to be the best, have the best pitching average, and 
you can pretty much guarantee which team's going to win. And that's really what they're doing when they're looking at the RQ. When they're looking at the RQ of the person, they're, they're, they're basically saying, are you burning mostly glucose or are you burning mostly fat? Right. By, by definition, somebody who's burning fat is able to burn body fat. Right. Somebody who is burning mostly glucose is unable to burn body fat. So hmm. by its very definition, the resting exchange ratio or respiratory quotient should be a predictor of weight gain. And the yep. resting metabolic rate, as I say, is only one part of the picture. Very good, Richard. Awesome analogy. Yeah. So that's that's really – I mean, I totally agree with Dr. Beichmann's thesis on insulin. I think that's an important part of the picture. The, the other thing that he mentioned was that um, his advice to people trying to lose weight is to change their macros to affect insulin, and, it, and they can easily lose up to 100 pounds. And his advice changes then when they come to him after doing that, and he says, well, maybe you now need calories in, calories out. You need to restrict your 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 intake. And he mentioned that as people lose weight, then they're – resting metabolic rate naturally goes down. Uh, and most of the studies of that has actually been in, for, for example, the biggest loser follow-up. Most yeah, of the yeah. studies have been in people who are cal- calorically restricting right? and their metabolic rate definitely goes down. And it's pretty obvious that you know, in my case, certainly, my metabolic rate goes way up when I eat a lot of food and then stop eating mm. and fast and I lose weight there and then I you know, go back to a cycle where I'm eating a lot more ketogenically. And my rate is through the roof and it supports the brown fat theory because I'm hot. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. generating a lot of heat when I'm over- You're spilling energy. Yeah. And when I'm mm. fasting, I eventually cool down. Mm. And uh, that's the signal for me to uh, start the cycle over again. And it's working amazingly. So yeah. I don't buy the whole metabolic rate naturally slows down. It totally depends on what you eat and how often. Yeah, your body's going to determine what your metabolic rate is going to be based on available energy. So, Ian, um, you were treated to not only uh, my experience that uh, backs up what um, what Dr. Beichmann says and uh, sort of clarifies your question, but Richard's amazing baseball analogy is is just spot on. And and uh, hope I could have th- done cricket, you know. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and nobody would have understood. <laughs> yeah, hope that works for you, Ian. So, Richard, do you have an email? Yeah, so this message came from Kirkor in, uh, on the Ketogenic Forum in a thread that came from Fiorella's simple diagram that it d- demonstrated weight loss. And in that thread, we spoke about uh, Sisyphus pu- pushing a boulder uphill and uh, the boulder being fasting and, and, a, and, a, and a wedge behind it being the ketogenic diet. And some yeah. of the comments from that uh thread we used as material for our show last week on the metabolic uh, rate. So Kirchhoff yep. says, you know, regarding the Finney study, and this is the one where uh, uh, people were fed a hypochloric diet, 720 uh, kilocalories per day, and half of them were to exercise and half of them were to not exercise, and the people who exercised lost less weight than the people who sat on the couch the whole time during this study. And what the study yeah. was showing is that that we we modify our metabolic rate based on how much energy we have available. If we go out and go for a run on a treadmill for two hours, we have less energy available, so our metabolic rate drops down. And um, right. this was showing the fundamental mechanism behind that. And he mentions, he says in the Finney study, both groups were already at a severe deficit. And he says it would be interesting to see what difference exercise would make given a more modest deficit. So maybe they weren't so hypocaloric. And... Um, and he, he says uh, having more than one variable in a single study seems to be, to make any potential con- 
conclusion less reliable. And I, mm. the reason that they did that, they were giving an adequate protein amount. They were given between 1 and 1.5 grams per kilogram of lean body mass of protein. So we know that that's the rate that everybody says is the, the, you know, the, the, right. the, the, the ideal benchmark for maintaining lean muscle mass. What they were mm. given an, not enough of, obviously they were given no carbs, but they were given not enough uh, calories in energy, in fat, so that they were forced to um, basically use their body fat for energy. And so yeah. the the reason for doing this was to get everybody at the starting line on this, basically an, a like-for-like like comparison so that everybody was using body fat. If you had given them, instead of giving them 720 calories per day, if you were given them, say, 1,700 cal- kilocalories per day, you might have found some people with low metabolic rates that didn't even need that. And so they were at a hypercaloric ah. rate. So, you know, this was to make sure that everybody was under the line and force them all to be using body fat for energy. But it doesn't guarantee that they all had the same metabolic rate. No. It, well, we all have different metabolic rates. That's just part of our right. unique snowflakeness. But, um, mm. And it will change based on a bunch of factors that we spoke about the other week. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing he said was that uh, he was worried that there is scorn directed towards the eat from your body fat um, and that that may be misplaced by eat from your body fat. Do you, do you think he's talking about just you know when you when you fast when you reduce calories and you're burning body fat for fuel, your liver is burning body fat. Well, there is a theory that on the internet that fat is a lever. So if you lower the lever, then you're going to reduce your body weight. Right, and as we learned last week, that's not necessarily true. When you eat more calories from fat, you increase your metabolic rate, which then when you decrease it afterwards, you're you're utilizing more body fat and burning at a higher rate. It also depends on your basal rate of insulin, and everybody's going to be different. So somebody who has a fasting insulin above 13 uh, milli IU per liter, they can shift very little energy from body fat no matter what they eat. You know, they can eat nothing right. and they still have too much insulin to be able to, to use body fat. So what happens for them yeah, is yeah. that they... They, they can't get energy out of their body fat because insulin is blockading that energy in there. And so they get hungry, they get lethargic, and their metabolic rate plummets. And, and sure. so this is the problem. If somebody um, like that who shortchanges their caloric intake hoping to shift body fat could actually end up losing weight by burning amino acids for energy because their their body doesn't have energy any enough energy coming in. And sure. they're not able to get enough from body fat. What other sources of energy have you got? Well, you've got amino acids. So maybe there's some mm. uh, muscles that we don't exactly need for immediate survival. We can you know, convert those into energy and produce energy from those. Mm. Somebody who has a very low fasted insulin can eat less and their metabolic rate won't change because they're able to supply a lot of calories from body fat. So for them, it's an entirely mm. different picture. For them, fat is a reliable lever. You increase the fat on your plate, you put on weight. You decrease the fat on your plate and you lose weight. But for somebody who has this problem of, of high fasting insulin, it's really you're, you're talking about a piece of string you, fat is not a lever. Fat is a piece of string attached to a lever. And if you pull on the string, the lever goes up. But if you push on the string, the lever just stays where it is. What you need <laughs> is you need the lower insulin to be the counterbalancing weight on that lever. So yeah, I thought that was a given. I thought you know we should all have lower insulin. You know we're we're, we're all eating low carb and we're all trying to reduce insulin. Uh, Dave wants to chime in here. Yeah, actually, I have to say one of the most impactful moments I've had is, of course, from one of my favorite presenters, Ted Naiman, who's also been a guest on your show yeah. and mm-hmm. who I, I like recommend Ted. you follow. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, his original, I want to say from last year, talk on hyperinsulinemia brought about the one big light bulb that I had that I think really fashioned a lot of my research and understanding with the uh, system as it relates back to insulin, which is that it's arguable that insulin is actually primarily for the purpose of inhibiting lipolysis. Yes. In other words, mm-hmm. it's its primary goal from a systemic level, from a large scale level, is to block your fat, your body fat from being burned for energy. Mm. More so than it would be for shuttling in the energy that your cells, you know, such as for your skeletal muscle, your cardiac muscle would be uh, taking up instead. Yeah. And when you think about it in that perspective, you can understand why chronically high insulin is so problematic because you're actually cutting out that whole systemic uh, circulation. Sure. Uh, and that's, and per what you're talking about, that, that leads exactly into what you're talking about there, Rich. Yes. So insulin is basically acting as a switch between your body running on one type of fuel and your body running on another type of fuel. And that actually makes a lot of sense for why we get creeping insulin resistance. Because if insulin's ability to to shuffle energy into adipocytes, basically clear the circulation of of circulating lipids so that your cells can deal with, uh, with glucose, if that is compromised, if your pancreas sees, I've just produced some insulin, but there is still fat about, I'm going to make more insulin. As your adipocytes are less able to hold on to that fat because they are just full to, full to bursting, that actually provides a mechanical mechanism for why fat cells become insulin resistant. They're just full. They can't handle any more fat. Yeah. And so right. um, when that happens, insulin is high, but there's so, still so much fat in circulation because the fat cells have become insulin resistant. And so the pancreas yeah. has said, okay, I need, to, I need to pump out even more and even more. And so that, that sort of explains how, from a mechanistic point of view, creeping insulin resistance can happen over decades of exposure. But back to the mal from Kirkor, uh, this is one of the reasons why satiation is such an important measure because – and it's why we make the point to underline it at the top of the show when we talk about what a ketogenic diet is. We eat fat to satiety. Um, we mm. say that on every show or almost everyone. Um, that satiety signal will factor in how much fat you can mobilize given your insulin levels, how much exercise you're doing, how much protein you're eating, how much food is in your gut, how much energy is in your blood. You don't have to worry about all of these things, your insulin level, all of these factors. Your satiation signaling should sum all of that up and tell you add more energy or or, or don't add any more energy. So mm-hmm. um, it's when we become broken, it's when our, our we have a high-carbohydrate diet for so long and we're fundamentally insulin resistant that we become deranged and that mechanism no longer works. But if you um, – remove the carbs from the diet, then satiation tells you whether you've got enough energy uh, at the moment. Mm. And if your insulin is blockading your fat, then uh, then you're not going to have enough energy and you will end up eating more fat plate fat. And we mentioned this yep. last week. Sure. Um, and really, the if your insulin is too high to shift the body fat, you won't lose weight today. But the longer you are low carb, the lower your insulin exposure, the more insulin sensitive you can become and the less insulin your pancreas has to make. So your basal rate over time will go down. Plus fat cells only live for 10 years. So in 10 years time, they'll all be nascent. There won't be any fat cells in your body that 
previously were deranged. And there's lots mm. of other strategies that you can use to lower insulin over time. So I guess wow. really the bottom line is keep calm and keto on. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> that's in a run, that's the long short of it. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry about the rant. <laughs> No, that's great. And and Dave, thanks for chiming in. And let's bring uh, Dave on as our official guest here. Dave Feldman was on the Cholesterol Hacking Show. I think we called it Hacking Your Cholesterol. And uh, he talked about his discovery in that what you eat for three days to five days before a blood test sort of determines the direction your numbers go. And uh, I actually did the Feldman Protocol with Dave, and I never really talked about the results, but uh, I'll, I'll let you take over, Dave. Uh, sure. Actually, I, you know, there's also another part you had earlier in the show that I kind of want to chime in on because it really kind of rankles me a bit. Um, sure. The calories in, calories out model is so impressively simplistic and it frustrates me because I know, given how much I track my numbers, and for those people who don't already know this about me, I literally witnessed (laughs) obsessively take pictures of every single thing that I eat. Uh, I audit it constantly for, uh, you know, my fitness pal and ultimately going to be for chronometer. Mm. And this is just only to mainly capture uh, macro levels uh, to the degree in which I get down to micronutrients. I just, I haven't really even had the amount of time, but at the macro level, I can absolutely guarantee that before I went keto, I was eating less calories. Now I have to actually hit about 3000 calories or more, or I will lose more weight. I've already lost 35 pounds on a ketogenic diet. Yeah. You've got Mark Miller syndrome. (laughs) Yes. And I, and I don't think this necessarily applies to most people, but I will say this every time I see one of those floating, you know, retweeted charts where it says, Oh, just bring down your total calories or just bring up your total calories right. from whatever yeah. it was before. Well, before I was averaging around 2,400, 2,500 calories. Now I, I have to stay at around 3,000 to 3,200. And this came up in my most recent experiment, which I'm doing right now. Uh, in fact, I just now hit the halfway point where for five days I was going to have a meal replacement shake that's actually ketogenic. And the plan that they had it on was a full day was about 2000 calories. So I Wait thought, a minute, well, were you only eating shakes? That's only it? Only the shakes. Yes. That's it. Yep. That's it. And Ugh. I'll explain why. The experiments I'm, kind I'm of- sorry. <laughs> what I was going to do is I was going to have whatever that quantity was for five yeah. days. And then I'm going to replace 500 calories of that quantity with bread. So oh, I'm okay. actually going to have a about 70 grams of carbs, the most I've ever had uh, since I started a ketogenic diet from bread, along with whatever the net carbs are for the shake. So isocaloric, you're wow. going to stay the same amount of isocaloric of calories exactly. and just modify the carbohydrate. Right. Now, the stumble I ran into that I'm, I'm explaining here is that in the first two days of what was supposed to be the first five-day sprint, I was at 2,000 calories each day and drop five pounds in two days. Yeah. So I switched it and starting Sunday, uh, which was two days ago Mm -hmm. and then day before yesterday and yesterday, I switched it up to be 3000 calories, which was easy enough to do because the shake is easy. It's exactly consistent. Mm. Yeah. Now I'll be switching for this next five days 
I will drop out exactly 500 calories from the shake composition. So it'll be 2,500 calories of mm-hmm. this shake and 500 calories of the bread, mm-hmm. which is going to feel weird to me because I that's going to be not strange. Really eaten much it's going to be like eating a sponge. Yeah. <laughs> it, it probably will be. I'm, but we'll actually have a very isolated number of variables. Mm. We'll have yep. the ketogenic shake, sure. which another reason I like it, which you engineers would appreciate, but that I feel like a lot of scientists out there don't really put as much effort into is the shake also allows for an, a very specific consistency for my digestive system. Right. Right. So if I were to, for example, try testing having meat and potatoes uh, every day, the order of which I ate the meat and or the potatoes, I believe yeah. systemically would have an impact sure. on my blood lipids. It would have an impact on the speed with which the uh, glycogen comes into my system. Mm-hmm. Lots of other things that get impacted by bile salts, etc. Right. Anyway, so to digress a little bit, I just want to say plainly, the calories in, calories out model is absolutely encompassed by the endocrine system. We already yes. know we already know that there are top-off points at the top and the bottom level. Otherwise, people would just progressively get fatter and fatter until they died or they would drop weight until they died if they were eating basically the same meals over and over again. Yeah. So, right. I think even the biggest SECO people will have to concede that there are other mechanisms at play that clearly are managing the energy levels and that until we have a super metabolic chamber that can really pick up every single possible output of energy, mm. we really can't even come to a, a, a consensus on the means of measurement for it. Right. And to Ben Beichmann's point, you know, there are, there are at least two pathways of calories out that aren't being counted. You know, one is exactly. ketones through your urine and your breath, and the other is uh, f- undigestible fat. And heat. Yes, exactly. Heat. And how how hard is it to measure the heat coming from the brown adipose tissue? Right. Yeah. I would – seriously, to get a metabolic chamber to actually measure that minute amount of degree of calorie expenditure, I think would take enormous a level of technology we just You'd don't have, have to yet. be in a temperature and humidity controlled room and have skin thermometers all over your body. Be wearing a rect- rectal thermometer. Oh, there you go. You would pretty much have to you would pretty much have to have core temperature and yeah. you'd probably have a rectal thermometer and and who's going to sign up for that? And not just that. <laughs> you have to have temperature control of the room. Yes. That really got down to you know what? We're, we're getting off degree. to do a major geek zone. This is what happens when us engineers get Welcome together. to three but, engineers try to talk. Yeah. <laughs> point is, I would love to have that. Heck, I would love to have, uh, though my wife wouldn't, I would love to have like a toilet that actually could at least pick up the weight of expenditure. Yeah. Uh, but and that's, the amount of you know, fat. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a bit team. Even just weight would be fascinating. Right. So I'm going to go to, uh, because I feel like I can never say this enough, and I've got it down to a stock speech now. So in a short version... This, this is basically what my research demonstrates over and over again. The cholesterol yeah. test you're getting mm-hmm. is not being interpreted correctly. That's basically the short elevator pitch of what yep. my research keeps exposing. I have now, just now, taken my 57th blood test. Every wow. single one of these blood tests that I've taken, all 57 over, uh, it's now about to hit 16 months, they all have an advanced lipid profile. It's called an NMR, Mm -hmm. a nuclear magnetic resonance profile that really breaks out the cholesterol and the different stratification of all the different um, uh, cholesterol 
carrying particles called lipoproteins. Yeah. And if you're going on a low carb, high fat diet, and you then see a cholesterol test that suddenly explodes, yep. and you're getting very concerned about it, I would recommend coming to my site, not to put a plug into it, but I have a simple guide on cholesterol for people going on a low-carb diet that breaks out these details because what you need to understand is the cholesterol that is in your blood is not independently floating on its own. It comes in a vehicle that your body makes. And until you understand what that vehicle is and how it works, even at the basic levels, you're not going to understand why your cholesterol goes up and down uh, relative to what you're eating and why being powered by fat will have an impact on it. Mm-hmm. That, that actually happened to you though, Dave, because when you first went keto, your cholesterol numbers went crazy, didn't they? Yes. And this was the genesis of how you got into this. You were trying to explain how that happened. Correct. In fact, I joke now that cholesterol is sort of my gateway drug <laughs> to the <laughs> fat-based energy system that we're all on in a low-carb, high-fat diet. Mm, yeah. Uh, I'll say something here that I don't think that I've said in any other podcast, but I think it helps to kind of drive the point home, which is now that I understand how the lipid system works correctly, I can say that I feel confident everybody on a low-carb, high-fat diet traffics more cholesterol in their body, which is to say that because you're ingesting more fat and because the way by which your body gets that fat to the cells that need it, it puts it in that vehicle I just mentioned, the lipoprotein, that vehicle always comes standard with a payload of cholesterol. Right. So if we could put a turnstile into one of the veins in your body, Richard, Mm. And I was just to constantly count every single molecule of cholesterol that passed in every single lipoprotein. I'd be willing to bet you have more cholesterol that's moving through your body regardless of what your cholesterol test said. Because the cholesterol test that you get on the day following a fast is really going to have more to do with what your body's preference for recirculating lipoproteins are. Right. And these are all the things that we talked about in the last episode, right? We touched on it somewhat. And of course, my recent talk at uh, Low Carb Breckenridge kind of breaks yeah. this out into deeper detail. But I don't think I don't think it gets across to people enough that the test that you're getting the next day uh, after having fasted for a period of time doesn't really truly reflect the cholesterol your body likes to have circulating through your body. Yeah. It's, it's actually, it's actually, um, a preference point, as I like to call it, that your body wants to have for these lipoproteins on patrol, if you will. Right. And what determines that number? I don't actually have an answer to that yet. I'm obviously actively investigating it, but I can say this. I can say that if you aren't powered by fat, let's say that you're primarily powered by carbs Hmm. and in being primarily powered by carbs, you're actually very careful with your calories so that you're not having an overage that requires more uh, de novo lipogenesis, which is the creation of the lipoproteins in your body. Then you'll yeah. be trafficking less cholesterol. Makes sense. So if all you care about is the total amount of cholesterol trafficking in your body, then I'm I can tell you you may want to become a uh, plant based vegan. <laughs> And get a lot more comfortable with a lot more insulin because mm. if it's all about trafficking of cholesterol, I feel pretty confident. I'd, I'd be willing to bet my house on it. You are absolutely recirculating more cholesterol. Now, why doesn't yeah. that scare me? Pretty simple. 
because the cholesterol that gets loaded on board these lipoproteins generally doesn't do anything at all. Right. <laughs> it generally makes its way back to the liver. Yeah. Mm. There's uh, uh, on the other end of it, the lipoproteins that are carrying triglycerides, those are getting offloaded everywhere throughout your body. Your cells need those triglycerides because you're being powered by fat and the power for your fat is contained in those triglycerides. Yeah. One of the reasons why we have a problem on a carb-heavy diet when we've got stuffed fat cells is we don't have buyers for those uh, triglycerides being trafficked by uh, um, lipoproteins. And so they end up uh, hanging around for much longer and there's more opportunity for them to become oxidized and glycated and and basically damaged. Mm. So That's exactly right. And that's why I wanted to bring up why insulin inhibits lipolysis. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you're when you are eating enormous amounts of carbs and coming up with lots and lots of glucose and spiking up your insulin like crazy mm. and you end up in a state of where your adipose tissue is way overstuffed, see Ted Naiman's most recent talk, yeah. of course, mm -hmm. then you've got a really big problem because you actually have an anabolic hormone, insulin, stopping the shuttling into your adipose tissue of the actual lipoprotein. So you have these overstuffed VLDLs that don't even go into their later stages right. mm -hmm. that are just floating around in the body. Unable to deliver. Right. Exactly. And this is, this, is, this is why from a mechanistic standpoint, the low-carb diet is so powerful is that fat, fat traveling in your lipoproteins mm. is in fact an end product for either use or storage. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Glucose is not. Glucose is a, let's see if we can do energy first. Mm. And it's only a single use product. It's yeah. only for energy. Yeah. And if you know what, too much of it's hanging around for a while, then your body has to take action to convert it. Yeah. And then if it does convert it, it needs for there to be a lower level of insulin <laughs> so that it can correctly shuttle it to storage. That's right. Well, and if insulin is high, it'll convert glucose into fat and put, put it in storage as fat. Correct. So, Dave, your latest research involves how exercise affects cholesterol, right? And you've done some experiments? That's correct. In fact, at the presentation that I did in Breckenridge, I made a point to mention that all of my data points went from when I started um, with my first cholesterol test to August of last year. The reason was because I knew from August until January of this year, I would be doing a lot of distance running. My wife and I had uh, <laughs> like four half marathons and one full marathon nice. scheduled <laughs> Wow! between August and January. And I was not looking forward to it. But from the scientific standpoint, <laughs> I was looking forward to it because I could finally suss out a theory I had going all the way back to the beginning of my research, which wow. is the moment I started learning about it as I – We'll continue to reiterate as many times as I can. The more you learn about the lipoprotein-based system, the more you learn it's really about energy distribution. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm going to hammer that point home one more time. The more I right. learned that, hey, triglycerides keep coming off of these lipoproteins, even though the cholesterol is not in relative terms, Yeah. the more the more I can say these guys, their main job, their full-time job before they go home and kiss the wife, their full-time <laughs> job is handing out these triglycerides. And oh, yeah. once in a while, a cell's in trouble and needs to use endocytosis to pick it up and get both its phospholipids and its cholesterol. Sure. But that yeah. that's its side gig. Yeah. And delivering fat-soluble vitamins too, right? Exactly. And the fat-soluble vitamins, which actually still has a higher activity 
uh, with the triglycerides than it does the cholesterol distribution. Right. Cholesterol is just along for the ride, kind of just in case anything. It's like a fire extinguisher, right? In case anything That's goes right. wrong. I could, if if it were if the lipoprotein was a car, it'd be the spare tire. <laughs> Probably. Yes. If the lipoprotein was a cruise ship, it would be the life rafts. Yeah. Yeah. It it you want you do want it. You do want to have it on board, but its use, its use, and that's the key, is actually very low relative to the passengers in the car, relative to the passengers on the cruise ship. That's actually yeah. what those things mainly do, mm-hmm. right? The triglycerides and fat-soluble so, vitamins, yeah. So, knowing that, knowing when cells really need cholesterol, virtually every cell in your body actually can make its own cholesterol. Yeah. But – that's not enough for for cells that are in really big trouble. They need to do something called, and I know this is going to be a mouthful, receptor-mediated endocytosis, which is really just another way of saying eat an entire LDL particle. No, 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 low, no, no. Low-density no. lipoprotein. <laughs> Why? Because you're going to pull apart all the pieces in it because uh, this is the genius of the human body. Mm. The low-density lipoprotein that's that's carrying around your, your energy from fat and also carrying around cholesterol – it's made of the stuff that cells are made of. Yeah. It has phospholipids and cholesterol, which is the membrane of your cells. In fact, even the organelles inside your cell also have cholesterol. That's why cholesterol is found in every single cell of your body. And that's why you hear that it's so necessary for cell reproduction and normal cell function. Exactly. Yeah, it's the waxy mechanism that gives cells a rigidity. Correct. In fact, if you didn't have any cholesterol in the membrane of your cells, they would just fall apart. Yeah. Hmm. You, you act, they're kind of like the steel girders, except that they're flexible steel girders. <laughs> like boneless chicken. You ever seen them suckers when they're alive? They just kind of fall all over the <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So with this in mind, when you learn that part of cell repair, when it can't repair itself through its own synthesis of cholesterol is to engulf a happily passing by lipoprotein, mm. then naturally, early on, I thought, well, darn it, this is probably going to be a confounding variable. So I intentionally, for the first nine months of my research, I intentionally tried to not run, tried to not get intensive exercise. Because that would cause damage and then that would cause en- uh, endocytosis of, of lipoproteins. Exactly. That's exactly right. Mm. In this entire time that I'm doing it, I'm complaining to my wife that I'd better be right because <laughs> I'd never had such a long sedentary period. And I knew at the point that I was going to be starting my training for my running due to travel and some other things, I would actually have missed the first half of the training. Mm. So my very first training run, very first long training run was seven miles. And I have this, <laughs> this in the blog. The first five miles of it, I was really dying. I just, I could hardly stand it. And sure enough, the blood test I took, the very first of the blood tests that I took um, from two days after that seven mile run was one of the biggest gaps that I had in my trend lines. Right. So the advantage that I have for nine months of seeing this pattern is, as I showed at uh, Breckenridge, is you can see, you can see where you would expect my cholesterol to land given the amount of dietary fat I had. Yeah. So now we have this advantage of knowing where, based on the food that I ate, we would expect my cholesterol to be. And if my theory was right, then the cholesterol, the LDLC and the LDLP should in fact be lower relative to what the prior trend was. Right. And that's 
exactly what happened. Wow. Yeah. In fact, the LDLC and the LDLP, the largest gaps I have in all of my data from where the expected trend lines are, was following that cold open seven mile run yeah. at the very beginning. And at the very, very end, following a week of a 5K, a 10K, and a full marathon, the day after that full marathon, I also had one of the lowest uh, LDLC and LDLP scores I had relative to the food that I ate. Nice. So you're wow. actually able to track cellular damage in your lipids? Theoretically. Right. <laughs> it, I, I will say that I've got to be a good scientist mm-hmm. because there could be other reasons. We sure. don't know. But I will say this. It definitely – it definitely brought about a lot of weight behind the theory. And I didn't even want to release the data then until I had a little bit of a sedentary period following yeah. that marathon. To see if you reverted and back. Exactly. So I always kind of knew in the back of my head, and I've been told this, and maybe I didn't know it, but I believed anyway, that um, when you exercise, you are really tearing muscles apart. I mean, you're really yeah, stressing yeah. them. You're, you, you are essentially damaging them and it's the rest period when everything, when the muscle grows, you know, when, when everything gets put back together. Um, you know, I, I kind of like fasting does, right? You fast and you, you, you sort of autophagy kicks in and you get rid of dead cells and dead proteins and things like that. And maybe even scavenging up some proteins. But then when you, um, feast again, your whole, your, practically your whole immune system gets rebuilt. I mean, I kind of think of it that way. Is it, This plays into what you're saying, doesn't it? Well, and this is why, uh, to kind of take a larger point of view on the, on the LDLs, the LDL particles, uh, the low-density lipoproteins, they're an all-purpose care package, if mm. you will. They, th- the best way to think of it is anything that right now you eat – that you could put in water and it's not going to mix well with water. That's mm-hmm. the same thing with blood, yeah. right? It's it's called polar versus nonpolar. And I'm sure Richard mm-hmm. could expand quite a bit on it. But virtually anything that you eat that your body wants in the bloodstream that is a lipid, it's going to put in the same thing in a low-density lipoprotein. And it keeps the traffic of these things on a constant alert, constantly going by your cells your cells have a very sophisticated, I'm not going to get into receptors, but they have a sophisticated system by which they can pick and choose what they want to get mm-hmm. from those passing by low-density lipoproteins, just like mm-hmm. they do with uh, glucose, for example. They yeah. have this means by which they can locally control within themselves what they want or what they need. And sure enough, yes, when there are cells that need a lot more than what they can produce within themselves – they will engulf an entire load. It's probably one of the uh, most powerful means of repair there is. And it's, I think it's one of the reasons why I feel so significantly less sore relative Mm. to what I, I was so woefully undertrained. And even for as much as I was dying on my seven mile run, I, I don't think I would have survived it when I was carb centric. Me too. And my recovery periods are so night and day different. Not just because of the lack of lactic acid, which you know is also uh, right. from being on a glucose-centric diet. Creates but, pain. <laughs> yeah. It, it was very noticeable between my wife and I. <laughs> I. I tried not to bring any attention to it, but I could walk just fine. Like, I mean, after yeah. a series of races. Uh, I've had this experience exercising. I've talked about it on the show before that uh, I've taken my recumbent 
three-wheeler out, crossed the bridge, gone 20 miles, and could have gone all day. Mm. Like, not felt any pain. Yes, it wasn't easy, of course, because I'm exerting myself, but it felt good rather than, oh, you know, you know, feel the pain, no pain, no gain. Like, that just goes away. Yeah. Pain is just gone. Yeah, one of the advantages of uh, adapting to ketones is that we upregulate across our entire body the ability to pass ketones across our cell walls. Well, one of the yeah. things that that transporter passes is lactic acid. <laughs> so we mm-hmm. become really efficient at getting lactic acid out of our muscle cells. And so, mm. uh, you know, we don't have the problem of the buildup that uh, – glucose burners have so yeah i agree it's just, i have the same experience when i'm i, I do a 100k bike ride I, I i could stay in the saddle for another hour i just i'm bored i'm coming in <laughs> it's an embarrassment of riches yeah. <laughs> so yeah i'll further add that i wanted to intentionally make these endurance runs and intentionally have tried to avoid getting a lot of resistance training so mm. that I could keep both data sets discrete. Right. I wanted to specifically see, and this is this is my favorite part, probably won't be a lot of other people's favorite parts, but I've mentioned triglycerides or energy because they're a yeah. combo pack of three fatty acids, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. what I was most interested in wasn't even cholesterol, which I know a lot of people who are listening now would be. I was specifically interested in what the depletion of triglycerides would show. Yeah. So... Here's the bombshell, at least for me, Mm. which is... Wait, let's get a drum roll. (laughs) All right, go ahead. The bombshell for me is the three lowest triglyceride scores I've ever had followed races in that period of time. Because you were using the energy. Wow. So my triglycerides following the uh, 11-6-16 races was 27. What? Wow. My triglycerides following the 11, 13, 16 races was 42. Wow, that, even that's low. And my triglycerides following the very last that included the marathon was 31. Wow. And what are they normally? They're normally up around 300 or something, aren't they? Or? No, no, no. My triglycerides, my average is around 91 okay. of all of my triglyceride scores. Hmm. Now, what does it mean if you have low triglycerides? Does that mean there's more being utilized quicker? What I think it means, which gets back to kind of the general energy system and something I've talked about actually with Richard quite a bit several, several months ago, even before I did any of the exercising, mm. is that there might in fact be a, we'll call it an alternative glycogen store with having lots of these lipoproteins being recirculated throughout your vascular system. In other words, if you don't have a lot of glycogen stores and like me you're very lean right then your body may still want to have something that's readily available for use as energy and has a reason to upregulate the total amount of those lipoproteins circulating around hmm. in order to find out if i was right about this though i needed to have a phase of time that was like this where i could see what the depletion of those triglycerides actually were. Right. So what you're so talking about is you're, you, when you say an, an additional glycogen store, you're talking about glycogen being the way that we store glucose in muscle and in our liver. But in this case, you're talking about storing energy, triglycerides, circulating in lipoproteins all the time as a readily available source. So if you need to suddenly, all of a sudden, run a marathon, you can do. 
Yes. Uh, think about it from a speed of energy standpoint. Mm. If you need to lose weight, that's great, but that's a slow storage to retrieval system. Yeah. If you need to run away from the saber-toothed tiger that just showed up, you better hope you have high glycogen stores because that is the fastest yep. means of energy you're going to have. Yep. Right. Let's say that you're on a very low-carb diet and you really just don't have the same level of glycogen stores that you used to when you were constantly topping it off, especially for things like distance running. Sure. Right? Mm. Well, if you were an engineer and you had this problem, but you knew that there was this other means of energy that you had available. Put a turbocharger on the engine. <laughs> right. You can put a turbocharger on there. And that's the one distinction between myself and my sister and my dad, who also are not only closely genetically related, but didn't become hyper responders like me. Their cholesterol levels bumped a little bit, but not a lot. Mm. It kept making me come back around to this. Is it possible because I have higher energy demands that my body feels comfortable upregulating more LDL right. particles, more low-density lipoproteins mm. to make the triglycerides more available for fast use. Yeah, it's building up your capacity, really. Your body is comfortable with having a higher capacity because you use the energy more often. So it's quite happy having more circulating triglycerides for when it needs them, and they just happen to be in lipoproteins, in LDL. Mm. That's correct. In fact, it's also what plays more into patterns I've seen with lots of people reach out to me now who are hyper responders because of my sure. blog and so forth. And there seems to be a disproportionately higher number of people relatively mm. who are lean and or athletic, which does seem to mm. loosely support the theory. Mm. Now, again, I don't hang my hat on this theory. It's just one that makes a lot of engineering sense. And that's why I was so excited to get these triglyceride numbers back because I could say, okay, if I'm right about this, then even after 24 hours following the marathons, which it had to be because they're always held on a Sunday and there's no phlebotomist yeah. lab open on a Sunday. Yeah. Even 24 hours later, I would expect that the triglycerides would be depleted in a noticeable way. And man, are they depleted in a noticeable way. Yeah. Like huh. these are the three lowest scores I've ever had. Wow. And they're exceptionally low relative to uh, the corresponding LDLC and LDLP. So it's not just the removal of the LDL particles alone that can account mm. for the difference, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So one of the things you might be running up against is the, the maximum capacity that body fat can deliver energy. Uh, which is we know that we know that the limit is what thirty one and a half kilocalories per day per pound of of fat. So you're quite lean. You don't have a lot of body fat. Let's say, just for the sake of argument, you have ten pounds of body fat. I mean, you probably have thirty or something in that range. But let's say for for the to make the math easy, you have ten pounds mm. of body fat. You can only deliver uh, three. 315 kilocalories of energy from that body fat in a day. And that's where it taps out at its maximum. So you really have to have that extra circulating uh, triglycerides in lipoproteins to be able to uh, draw down. And this might be one of the reasons why people who are lean can only fast for a day and then they run into a brick wall that the rest of us don't mm. because they have drawn down their circulating lipids to the point where and and they've reached the point where their body fat cannot keep up with uh, to keep up with the the rate keep up with demand and and uh, and that might 
well be why some people who are lean, for them to fast, they really have to fat um, supplement during their fast. That's not only right, but while I don't know that we're going to have enough time to get into it, I did happen to do a recent fasting experiment. Mm. And oh, really? I'll just tease that I had to cut it short. Ah. And I was very adamant about making sure my electrolytes were refined for it and everything else. But um, there's quite a lot to say about that experiment, but it basically reinforces exactly what you're saying. You mean that that your body didn't have enough fat to draw down on and you ran into trouble? Are you going to post this on your blog? Yeah, I'll probably post it on the blog. We, we may even do a show on it at a later time or something because awesome. there's actually a pretty interesting story behind it. Mm. Wow. Uh, but short version is I won't be doing it again given everything <laughs> that happened. Wow. Uh, oh, dear. And I am fairly confident that at the very mechanism you and I are theorizing on, mm. there again, there just seems to be more supporting evidence. I don't, I don't have to know every mechanistic aspect behind it yet. Right. I just know what low-hanging fruit, like the dry triglyceride depletion, yeah. supports the overall theory. And thus far, it does seem very substantial. Mm. Okay. The irony is that this is all well past the general cholesterol testing standpoint, oh, which yeah. is practically old news to me now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Dave, uh, we're just about out of time here. In fact, we're over a little bit, but um, I feel like we could talk for hours and hours. I hope you'll keep the conversation going on ketogenic forums. And at KetoFest as well. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to KetoFest. And once again, guys, thank you for having me on. I can't wait to uh, can't wait to do another update with you guys again soon. All right. Awesome. It's always a good chat. Thanks, Dave. And that brings us to... Recipes! Recipes. 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 All right. You go first, buddy. So my recipe this week is going to be a simple one. It's actually for clotted cream. Now, if you're if you're not British, you probably don't know what clotted cream is, right? I mean, this is a, a European thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's a slow-baked cream. Hmm. Essentially, you take two pints of cream, you put it in a Pyrex dish, like a glass dish, and you put it in the oven at 175 Fahrenheit or 80 Celsius for 12 hours. Oh, wow. And then you let it cook, and basically it, it develops a a golden brown crust on the top of the cream. Oh, no kidding. And the top of the surface of it starts to clot together. And then you put it in, uh, you basically cool it to room temperature, cover it with some plastic wrap like saran wrap or glad wrap, and you put it in the fridge to chill because you really have to get this chilled. And what what happens is you end up separating out the thicker clotted cream at the top and then watery cream down the bottom. And the, you basically pour out the watery cream and you can use that, you know, anywhere you'd use sort of a – anywhere you'd use milk maybe. And um, then with the clots, you basically pour them into a jar and you, you can use them on – the, the British use them on scones, which is a, a British invention. Yeah. It's very similar to a sweet biscuit. So an American biscuit yep. – uh, that's uh, they have, they have scones. They have a thing called Devonshire teas, which is a scone cut in half with clotted cream and raspberry jam or strawberry jam, some kind mm. of berry jam on it. Uh, but clotted cream is just delicious. It's got a, like a nutty. It's like cream with a nutty flavour. So um, wow, because it's got the toasted aspect to it. Yeah, that's right. But it's been slow cooked in the oven. And um, wow. Yeah, so that's that's my recipe today. It's thanks to Fiorella who uh, posted it on our forum. Uh, she posted it, it's actually a video, and we'll put the links in the show notes. That's awesome, Richard. Thanks, Fiorella. 
Yeah. So what have you got, Carl? Well, uh, I've talked about it before. You've talked about it before. We just talked about it on the last show. <laughs> uh, Brenda Zorn's amazing pork rind pancakes or waffles. Oh, wow. And I don't think I've ever given the recipe before. No. And if you're thinking, yuck, just <laughs> you know, get over it. it they're so, so good. You're going to want to use these pork rinds for everything in baking. So when we moved into the place in Breckenridge, uh, uh, you and I and, uh, and Dave were all there. And the first night we found a waffle machine and we said, what are we going to do with this? And Brenda said, I, I have exactly what you need. <laughs> and she made these yeah. waffles for us the following morning. And I have... Yep. I used to love waffles, and I assumed when I went keto that that was that was the end of my waffling adventure. Uh, but uh, mm. these were outstanding. So, all right. So this recipe comes from our ketogenic forums, and we posted a link to it so you mm. can read it and check out the beautiful pictures. Um, this makes one, you know, I don't know, eight nine inch Belgian waffle. So with four sections, the, this is the waffle maker that I put it in anyway. So if you want. You know, if you, this is probably going to serve one person at breakfast. Mm -hmm. You want one cup of crushed pork rinds, which turns out to be about one and a half ounces. Okay. And you don't want to pulverize them, but you kind of want them like coarse breadcrumbs. Mm. So I use a food processor and it works just great. Then you need two tablespoons of heavy whipping cream, two large beaten eggs, a teaspoon of vanilla, a teaspoon of cinnamon. If you like nutmeg, throw that in there too. Whatever you like. Mm. Now... That's for pancakes. Mm -hmm. If you want to make waffles, you have to add some oil. Ah. And she recommends a quarter cup of avocado oil. You could use olive oil or butter or something like that. Sure. Melted yeah. butter is mm. what I normally use in waffles, olive oil, avocado, whatever. All right, a quarter cup. So now while your waffle iron is heating up, you want to let it sit. And let it sit for about five minutes because it gets all, gets all happy when it sits. It congeals. It just sort of turns into this gloppy mess, but it, it, you'll actually have to spread it on the waffle iron. Yeah. All right. But you won't need any spray. You won't need any oil or anything like that. It's not going to stick. Mm -hmm. And that's it. You just make waffles with it and uh, use your favorite. Now, what's great about this, Richard, is they already have salt because of the pork rinds. Right. Right? But that is wonderful. Mm. I always put salt in my waffles. Yeah. Salt and sweet stuff is good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. Just check out the ridiculous pictures. And uh, Brenda's got pictures of she made a pancake and a waffle. She put bacon and eggs on top of it. <laughs> and uh, man, just amazing. Yeah. That's it. That's Thanks, awesome. Brenda. Thank you, Brenda. So, of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something that you don't agree with, or some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we said, send it by email to dudes at 2ketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter at 2ketodudes, on Instagram at 2ketodudes. And, of course, if you want to join our forum, it's www.ketogenicforums.com or forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, T-shirts, coffee yeah. mugs, and other yeah. junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.2keto.com. And now you can join the 2Keto Dudes fan club. Go to 2ketodudes.com, click on the fan club button, and answer a few questions. You can also just go to fanclub.2keto.com. Nice. And just by answering these questions, you'll be eligible to win something in every show. And we don't have that list together yet. So we don't have anything to give away yet, but we will in a couple of weeks. We will. Once we build up an, uh, a number of uh, people in that list, we shall start giving away swag. Yes. And if you feel like supporting our podcast and our forums, 
hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com or go to donate.2keto.com. You can also see our podcast and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a great review on iTunes and make sure you check out ketofest.com. Absolutely. Because we're halfway through, we're halfway funded, and... Go do it. Here's your opportunity to help us because we're going to make history and we need our friends to help us do do that. Yep. Keep calm and keto on, Richard. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl. All right. We'll see you next time on On Two Keto Keto Dudes. Dudes.